Both Barley and Niffler need high-powered dog food to help them out in the field. Whenever I live somewhere with refrigeration, I love feeding them Nom Nom Now. Niffler can be a slow and picky eater, and he actually dances and whines when he knows Nom Nom Now is coming out of the fridge, and then licks the bowl clean. Nom Nom's food is full of fresh proteins that your dog loves, and the vitamins and nutrients they need to thrive. You can actually see proteins in vegetables like beef, chicken, pork, peas, carrots, kale, and more. When you sign up for Nom Nom Now, you share information on your dog's age, breed, weight, allergies, food preferences, and, importantly, their activity level. Then they'll tailor specially made blends and serving sizes to your dogs, which are delivered in a huge, exciting refrigerated box. If you're ready to make the switch to fresh, you can order Nom Nom Now today by going to zen.ai slash canine conservationists one and use the offer code canine conservationists all one word to get 50 percent off your first order plus free shipping so again that is zen.ai slash canine conservationists number one and use the offer code canine conservationists at checkout you'll get 50 percent off and of course nom nom comes with a money money back guarantee if your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom. Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conservationist podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss detection training, welfare, conservation biology, and everything in between. I'm Kayla Fratt, one of the co-founders of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for land managers, researchers, agencies, and NGOs. We don't have any reviews to highlight, so if you haven't reviewed us yet on Apple Podcasts, please go ahead and drop us one there. It, they really make my day, and I'm always a little bit sad when I go to check and we don't have any new ones to read on the podcast. But today, I have the joy of talking to Janice Baker from the Veterinary Tactical Group about heat safety for our working dogs. So this is one of the episodes that's going to be included in our Working Dog Safety mini-series. Janice, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here, too. Yeah, this is such an important topic. So um, Janice, for everyone who is not aware of her, she is a doctor of veterinary medicine with over 20 years of experience in the U.S. Army, where she served 10 years in special ops as the command veterinarian for Naval Special Warfare Development Group, the Joint Special Operations Command, and the Joint Special Operations Medical Training Center, respectively, with multiple deployments to combat zones in support of the canine operations. As a civilian, she deployed as direct veterinary support with the federal government canine unit on multiple federal law enforcement operations while actively working in emergency veterinary practice in North Carolina. That sounds very busy. Um, she graduated from University of California Davis School of Veterinary Medicine in 1999, became a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Preventative Medicine in 2014, and earned a Master of Veterinary Forensics degree from the University of Florida in 2016. So you can see why I'm excited to talk to Janice who has so much experience and so much useful stuff um, to share with us. But before we get into it, we're going to dive into our science highlight, which is one that Janice suggested. Um, it is titled Rethinking Heat Injury in the SOF Multipurpose Canine, a Critical Review. It was published in the Journal of Special Operations Medicine by our very own Janice Baker, Paul Hollier, Laura Miller, and Ward Lacey in the summer of 2012. And in it, I'm going to quote rather generously, they write, a majority of the management guidelines for heat injury in the veterinary reference books and evidence are based on review articles or professional opinion of the authors versus evidence from original research. 
Later, they continue, the phenomenon of quote-unquote circular referencing is also prevalent in the heat injury literature. Current guidelines supported by review articles and textbooks often provide no citation or cite other review articles for clinical standards such as normal temperature ranges, treatment methods, and the recurrence of heat injury. This quote-unquote circular referencing phenomenon misrepresents anecdotal evidence and professional opinion as scientifically validated, reinforcing concepts and recommendations that are not truly supported by the evidence. Further study is needed to fully understand heat injury in SOF-MPCs. Janice, what does that stand for again? Uh, Special Operations Forces Multipurpose Canine. It's Excellent. a type, type of military working dog. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and that is in how this applies to prevention, diagnosis, and treatment guidelines. In order to provide SOF canine pro programs with the best clinical care and advice, SOF veterinarians must take, make clinical judgments based on the evaluation of the most accurate and valid information possible. Um, and now we're going to try to get into some of the best information that is available for us. So Janice, why don't we start out with, I think there's so many different places we could start. We could start with like, what are the risk factors for heat stress or what does it look like? I think we can start with either one of those. So I don't know if you have a, a flow that you prefer to start with. Sure. I, I, I think um, from the context of what, of what we're talking about, rethinking, we should start with what we thought, if that makes sense, about, bo yeah. about both of those topics. So for years, decades, we, uh, when we described heat injury, we would say it looks like um, seizures, collapse, bloody diarrhea, a bunch of gross things, um, staggering, stumbling, collapse, seizures, coma. And, and that's accurate, right? It's accurate. But the only person or people that helps is the veterinarian doing the forensic exam to figure out why the dog already died. That it's too late if right. you're seeing those. Yeah, that makes sense. So what we what we have sort of evolved to teaching or evolved to stressing when we talk about heat injury or just heat stress in general, and the terminology has changed quite a bit as well. Um, but it's normal for dogs to have thermal stress or get hotter when they exercise or they're in a mm -hmm. hot environment. So now what we say is let's look for these behavioral signs that show that the dog is having trouble tolerating that increase in heat. Because what we found, we used to say anything over 104, you, uh, 104 Fahrenheit, which is 40 centigrade, you have to uh, stop your dog and cool it down because it's a risk of heat injury. And anything over 106, it's heat stroke and your dog's probably going to die. And that's, mm, and that's, that's, is, and that's, is that, that's ambient temperature or rectal temperature? Uh, I'm sorry, uh, rectal temperature. Right, right. Yep. It, okay. um, yep. <laughs> yeah, that's very very important to um, to clarify, and we'll get into that later. But the uh, but we found is that these working dogs. We found it originally with uh, personally. I found it originally with those special operations dogs. But looking back at the at the evidence, what was actually out there as early as 1980, there had been studies with dogs exercising on treadmills or in the field hunting dogs that were getting up to 108. 107, 108, oh, wow. and they were perfectly fine. And so mm -hmm. why we never saw that, like why we never um, recognized that in the veterinary community uh, is there's a lot of reasons, but we didn't. We we stuck with that 104 and 106, and, and we based heat injury on the body temperature. But what we found over the last decade since we wrote that, that article that, that you were reading or that study is that um, the temperature 
it's different for every dog. Like my dog was 105 when I took him out of his crate because he was thinking he was going to get to go work. He was all excited. He was a search and rescue dog and he would spin in his crate and act like a crazy lab and he'd be 105. By the guidelines that we had put out as the veterinary community, I would have to just stop him right then and not work him. <laughs> so that's one thing. We, we figured out that looking at their behavioral and some physical signs of what their body looks like and how they're acting, that's more predictive of how they're doing with the heat than the body temperature alone. The other yeah. thing um, was, uh, well, the, I think you said the risk factors, right? Um, yeah. yeah. The, the risk factors are, I think we kind of knew the risk factors, but we didn't really pay them as much attention. And that's the main risk factor for heat injury is a, a rapid change in the ambient temperature or humidity of the dog's environment. So mm -hmm. when we mm -hmm. see the most heat injuries, you know, it's March. Um, I live in North Carolina where it's pretty cool. It doesn't ever get um, in the flatlands. It never gets too hor you know, horribly cold, but it'll be 45 degrees. The average high will be 45 degrees for several weeks. And then suddenly we'll have a 70 degree day. And yeah. that doesn't, you know, we're running around in t-shirts thinking this is beautiful, but that's a huge, you know, 25 degree, uh, 30 degree change for the dog. And those are the days, a beautiful 70 degree day when we think it's fine. Those are the days that the dogs get heat injury because they weren't prepared for that. They can't take off clothes and put on clothes like we can. And they mm -hmm. thermoregulate different to, where, to how we do. So the risk factor is the primary risk factor is, is your dog prepared to be in the temperature that it's going to be today mm -hmm. and a really simple way of of sort of estimating that is look at the high the average high temperature for the last two weeks and the average high humidity and if there's going to be a 15 degree change or a 15 percent humidity change then we know your dog's more at risk and that's a simple thing that anybody can calculate yeah. Yeah, that's just, super helpful. It doesn't mean don't work your dog. It just means you have to be extra cautious and cool him down a mm -hmm. lot during the day and things like that. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And I can imagine, and I, I'm sure this is something you ran into with the special forces dogs, but you know, we just did some field work in Guatemala in February and we had been living in Central America for a while. So my dogs were acclimated. Um, but I can imagine had we flown from, you know, February in the Pacific Northwest down to Guatemala right. to do that work, we would have needed to take a week or two to get the dogs used to particularly the humidity down there. Um, Absolutely. Would have been very, very challenging for our dogs. And you, you hit on that a little bit earlier. You asked me to clarify, I was talking about ambient temperature or rectal mm -hmm. temperature. And an interesting thing about that is, you know, I always, I get a lot of inquiries through email or just uh, questions when people say, you know, we want to make some kind of chart, like when, yeah. w at what temperature should we stop and rest? The thing is, it depends on your dog's accl acclimation and it depends on the individual dog within that environment. Um, I, I've worked on a lot of sled dog races up in Alaska. And I, j I remember this one particular day, it was five degrees above zero Fahrenheit. And it was with the wind chill, it was 25 below. I couldn't feel my face. My feet were frozen. And I was all done up in an Arctic suit. I should, mm -hmm. you know, should have been fine. I was just miserable. And it was right after the sun came up, which was about 9.30, 10 o'clock in the morning. And this team came in off the trail. And, and we always go up to the mushers and ask how their dog's doing. And he said, I'm going to rest my dogs. They're getting really hot. Yeah. <laughs> like, I can't feel my face. And your dogs yeah. are hot. Well, they were dogs that lived up 
above the Arctic Circle, and they're used to sub-zero temperatures. Mm -hmm. So if they're used to living at 10 below or 20 below over the winter, and it's five above, that's too hot for those dogs. Yeah. And that... And that just blew my mind. It's not the ambient temperature. It's what the dog's used to. And if yeah. you can have a dog heat stroke at five <laughs> five degrees while, I, while I'm dying of hypothermia, um, it's all about what you're acclimated to. Yeah, which I think, and so we had two different patrons ask um, this question. So Jess and Robin both asked if there are any tips for acclimation or is it kind of just time in the environment? Yeah, that's a great, great question. And I've seen what... I've seen this be misinterpreted or interpreted in in a not so great way. We used to say in the army, you know, you take your dog, your dog handler, you're going to deploy to Iraq or Afghanistan or Africa or somewhere. When you get there, you have to acclimate the dog for two weeks. So what they were doing is going from these training programs, like these six week pre-deployment training programs where these dogs were the most fit and acclimated to heat that they'd ever be. And then they'd take them there and put them in their air conditioned little trailer or hooch and let them sit for two weeks. Now, that, oh, no. that's, that's oh, not no. what we meant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's not what we meant. What we meant was for about two weeks, your dog isn't going to be able to work quite as much as it did before. Um, mm-hmm. So we say just incrementally, every day, challenge the dog a little bit more. So if you're going to exercise the dog, if you're going to base it on time, we're going to go for a 15-minute walk the first day. And we're going to at a nice leisurely pace and it's going to be a hundred degrees outside as it was often there. Mm-hmm. The next, the next day we're going to go for a 20 minute walk in a hundred degrees. Um, assuming it's all flat ground. The next day we're going to go for a 20 minute walk at 105 degrees. Uh, if that makes sense every day, yeah. incre- increase one thing, just like we do training yeah. dogs. We don't train, we don't change the entire environment and, and, um, problem for the dog change one thing at a time so that's what we mean by acclimation and what what we know this is some incredible work by mike davis dr mike davis from oklahoma state university he looked at dogs in acclimating uh, these working dogs that they put them into an environmentally controlled chamber uh, chamber meaning it's a kennel it sounds horribly mm-hmm. scientific but it's just a kennel <laughs> where they yeah. could control the humidity and the um, the temperature and they took them up to They'd been at a lower temperature, and they took them up to mid to high 80s. And the first few days, the dogs had a higher panting rate and a higher heart mm-hmm. rate. And after a couple of days, they didn't anymore. But then their body temperature increased slightly as well in response to that hotter environment. So when their heart rate and their body temp- I mean, I'm sorry, their heart rate and their panting rate went back down to normal, that told them that the dogs were acclimating to that heat. Mm-hmm. The, the body temperature was higher. Their temperature was a little bit higher, but the body didn't care anymore. And that took just a couple of days. It's incredible. Dogs, yeah. we still say two weeks. Arbitrarily, we say two weeks because that sounds safe. And, you know, that kind of coincides with, like, altitude and things like that um, or other kinds of acclimation. But that's basically it is when you get there, just be hyper aware that your dog probably won't be able to perform like it used to. So test it out a little bit and every day work a little bit harder and work a little bit harder. That's, that's exactly what we mean. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So what are some of the signs that we are looking for then kind of behaviorally or physiologically 
Um, you know, we've talked about, <laughs> we're not waiting until our dogs are seizing. Right. Um, <laughs> exactly. And, you know, maybe rectal temperature doesn't necessarily tell us much as much as we would like if you're not doing it really regularly and kind of know what your dog's normal variation right, is. Right, right. So what are some of the things we should be looking at? And maybe do you, do you still do a lot of rectal body temperature and just have a chart per dog? Yeah, absolutely. So mm-hmm. we, uh, you know, when we're doing research or we're doing field uh, observations and things, we have the dogs swallow the little core temp sensors and have a little radio uh, RFID pack on their back. So we don't have to insult them every couple of minutes with a rectal temperature. Oh, and, nice. and what we know, the microchip things don't really work. They're not as accurate depending on if the sun is shining on that part of the skin, the or the ear temperatures as well, because the ears are up there getting hot. Um, so in, in adverse or in extreme conditions, like really hot, really cold, those other gadgets aren't as accurate. So you got to do the rectal temperature. So, yeah, so what we recommend is that uh, dog handlers do a working temperature assessment. You know, sorry, dog, you're just going to have to put up with us for this one day and then we'll stop and take their temperature beforehand, take their temperature sort of in that anticipation phase when the dog starts getting the cues that he's going to go to work. Like my dog, if I picked up his leash, he lost his mind. Um, other dogs like police dogs sometimes there's lights and sirens they're going really fast Mm -hmm. the dog starts getting amped up and dogs all will have their own cues so take it again then take it every couple minutes during work and then when you stop work take it every couple minutes again until it goes back to baseline because what we found one study we did with uh, dr aaron perry up at uh, southern illinois university with a bunch of search dogs um, human remains detection dogs we found that for an average of six minutes after you stopped work and as much as 18 minutes, their temperature continued to increase. And other studies have shown that as well with different kinds of dogs, but this, this happened to be ours. So when you get done uh, searching and you just throw the dog in the vehicle or the kennel or wherever, you're not out of the woods then, right? It's, yeah. you have to wait until you see that temperature go back down. And that's, um, that's why dog handlers should get, Go out there and suck it up once with your dog and get that working temperature. Yeah. Uh, but after that, the behavioral signs typically are, we put it in the context of if you're throwing a ball to, to your dog, you're doing a repeated task. It could be mm-hmm. any training task. And if you throw the ball to the dog, you see the dog run out there like crazy, you know, ears back, tail out. Gets My dog used to put his head down and then like do a cheetah flip over himself when he <laughs> get the ball. Yeah. And everybody would cringe because we thought he'd, He'd break himself. And then and then they come running back. And after a couple of those, you see that intensity, that, that drive stays the same. They might be slower because they're tired, but their ears are still back, their tail straight out. They're going like crazy. But when the we call it the recovery phase, when they come back to you, it's not as fast. And yeah. mm-hmm. if you can picture it from overhead, they start doing this this arc out. And yes. They might circle around you a couple of times before they give you back the ball. Um, might chomp would... at a couple extra times. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then and then when they really start to get tired, so that's just normal. That's normal thermal mm-hmm. stress and normal muscle fatigue. Uh, but then you start seeing them do things like uh, we had. We used to have this about two acre fenced field that we would work dogs in. We'd see them go around the perimeter and it's like, I'll be there in a second. I just gotta sniff at this thing and pee over here and. I'll be back in a second. You know, they'd start trying to find dog things to do. And then you'd call them and they'd come back and they're like, wait, 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 I got to pee one more time. And what they're doing is they're like, look, human, I'm a dog. I'm a lab. I'm Malinois. I'm a whatever retrieve uh, 
breed I am, I have to chase this ball. I have no choice. So yeah. stop throwing the stupid ball because you're going to kill me. And yeah. so what, what they're doing is, is taking that time to cool down or to rest a little bit. And so, okay, now you're in the, the more moderate thermal stress. You're pushing their limits. When we see the absolute stop, this is their limit. You have to stop. The final signs that I'd say this is their last warning to you is one is uncontrolled panting. So they drop their ball or their toy, whatever their reward is. They have no interest in that reward anymore mm-hmm. because they just need to pant. And they're like, you know, I'm done with this game. I'm not, I'm not doing this. And the other is the uncontrolled panting where there's nothing you can do to get them to stop panting. Normally a dog's panting, you show them your toy or a piece of food or something cool and they, they close their mouth. Yeah, you, you know exactly. And they get all happy. Um, when they don't, not only are they averting their eyes and they don't care, but they're not taking the toy. And and we see some hybrids of that where they'll take the toy and drop it because that, that, that um, toy drive is so high, they'll take it. Or they'll take it and run over into shade and play keep yeah. away. And and those, you know, we think, they're, oh, they're being disobedient. They're playing keep away. We've got to work them out of that. Well, right now, the reason they're doing that is because they don't want to die. And and so we say the uncontrolled panning and the no interest in the toy or physically trying to take the toy away from you and put it somewhere else. And they don't necessarily want it. They'll take it over there and drop it. Um those are those are sort of our last warning signs that heat injury is imminent. Yeah, that makes sense. I know what I've noticed with my younger dog in particular, who's a he's a smooth coated coated border collie, and everyone always thinks that he's he's smooth coated and he's a blue merle, so he's mostly gray. And then my other is a rough coated black border collie, so everyone always asks how Barley does in the heat, the black one. Um, right. And it's actually Niffler, the gray one, who seems to struggle more, um, which is something I want to get into in a moment. But with Niffler, what he'll do a lot on the wind farms is he would go and um, he would go and lie in the shade of the turbine, the wind turbine, because yeah. that would be the only shade in the environment. And the first couple times, you know, I thought he was alerting to something because his alert is also a down. Um, right. And then I started being able to kind of see the difference in like how he sprawled and being like, okay, yeah. yep. The, the increasing You're, the surface area. The yeah. Sploot, like I'm just trying to, yeah, be as large and flat as possible. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, that wasn't actually upwind of where we were going. I don't think you could have caught odor and gone back over there and like, okay, we'll still take the break. Like, obviously you need this, even though, um, yeah, you know, those wind farm searches usually took us 15 to 20 minutes. So it felt to me like he quote unquote, should be able to do that without taking breaks. Right. Um, but he wasn't. And um, yeah, kind of listening to that was was challenging, but like very important because, yeah, I don't want to kill my dog. Right. And you, you brought up a really important point with if there's any veterinarians that listen to this or veterinary personnel is listen to the handler. The handlers know their dogs. And, you know, people will come into our clinic. We Everyone in the world in the Fayetteville, North Carolina, Southern Pines area has a trophy Malinois because they're cool dogs. And, you know, a lot of people are military, ex-military. And so um, we'd have a lot of Malinois come in that weren't working dogs. And or even if they were, the handler or the owner would say, my dog is just, he's really tired or something's wrong with him today. And meanwhile, the dog's like trying to eat the bench or the couch or um, just nuts. And, and I'm thinking like, there's nothing wrong with this dog. But it's, if a dog is just sitting there calmly and you think, wow, what a well-behaved dog, or I do as a veterinarian, and they're saying, this isn't him, 
we have to believe that um, because they, you know you know your dog, and if yeah. and it, if your dog normally takes fifteen minutes to search an area, but now they they're going slower and they want to take a lot of breaks, they're telling you something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, the two times I've taken Barley to the emergency vet have both been because he's refused food. Which and is probably, it's just like, it's such, it's like <laughs> with Niffler, my younger, I, again, I would, I wouldn't take him to the emergency vet at all for that. He's kind of a picky guy who is, he's very concerned about his figure and often <laughs> doesn't finish food when I'm trying to fatten him up. He's always, he's chronically underweight, oh, um, yeah. <laughs> intact boys. Um, and then, yeah, my, my, my neutered older boy. Yeah. If he refuses food, it's like, okay, something's we're, wrong. We're off to the ER. Right. Um, so, okay. So and this is a little bit of a myth busting tangent, but is there anything behind coat color or coat type, or is it really much more kind of individual and acclimation? So we know, we know in other species, sheep, cattle, horses, we know that especially in animals that produce meat or milk or, or produce something um, as, as their job as an animal, um, they milk production will go down in cows that have more dark, spots than light spots or dark areas. Um, we know in, in other, lots of other species that dark coat negatively affects thermoregulation. And, and we see that we can measure that in animals that, especially that produce milk, that that goes down. So we know that is a thing and we know the physics of light and dark surfaces and Mm -hmm. what we know that already. So, but I've, you know, looking back, in emergency over 20 years, I don't think I've seen any pattern of color in heat mm-hmm. stroke. Um, and so we did, we did a study with Southern Illinois university a couple of years ago, uh, several graduate students and some un- a big team of undergrad students. And, and then Dr. Aaron Perry, we, we had about 10, we had 10 Labradors, black Labradors, 10 yellow Labradors. And they were all from the same kennel. They were being trained as service dogs. So they all ate the same thing for 60 days prior. They lived in the same kennel. They got the same amount of exercise. Everything was controlled. And we just simply had the undergrad students walk them around a horse arena on a leash for 30 minutes in the sun. And mm-hmm. it wasn't really a hot day. It was 82, something like that. Um, and cloud cover, we'd have to stop while the clouds rolled over and wait till they left because we were specifically testing the solar radiation and we tested it wasn't very invasive as we don't like to do you know lots of probes and lines and tubes and things in dogs um it was we did thermal thermal scanning of their eyes and their skin folds and other places we did uh, the core temperature readings and the rectal temperature we did panting rate and water consumption and as all because those are things that a handler can do in the field yeah, um, not so much with the thermal thing, thermal thing, but that was just kind of a fun thing to add. Um, of course, but we didn't. You know, if you have sensors going into their carotid artery, you can't do that in the field, so it's not practical. So anyway, what we found, we found no difference in the body temperature between the black and yellow dogs, mm-hmm. and what we expected. You know, our hypothesis was we won't find a difference because we'll find something that black dogs are doing working a little bit harder to keep cool. Like their panting rate will be higher. Mm. Their, their water consumption will be higher. Their heart rate will be higher. Something will be, they'll be working a little harder to stay at the same temperature. And we didn't find that. And so the only thing we found was that the black dogs cooled down faster afterwards, which told us there's still something that the black dogs are doing to work a little bit harder. They, they were in overdrive to cool down faster 
Um, but we didn't know what it was because we weren't doing the right kind of test, you know, the cardiac invasive stuff. Um, so, <laughs> but from a practical standpoint, what we said is yes, black dogs probably in theory um, get more solar radiation and therefore in theory are more susceptible. But from a practical standpoint, we didn't see a difference. The yeah. dogs I wonder if, are adapting to it. Yeah. I mean, that kind of makes sense to me in a way, and I am not pretty far from an expert on this, but, um, you know, when you think of the cattle, it seems like most of their heat would be coming from the sun and like just solar radiation. Yeah, and that's what's cooking them versus the dogs are exercising. So, so much more of it is coming from the heat right. generation kind of internally. And that wouldn't change quite as much we, um, based we on had, the color. Does that, is that something you've thought about? Yeah, we did. And we, we had to, mm -hmm. uh, we had to really stand uh, sort of defend it, defend our methods to the reviewers, the peer reviewers, because the dogs were walking and they said that was a form of exercise. And what, what, how did that contribute to the, um, to the very mild increase in body temperature that we saw? And we wanted to just have them stand there, but we, um, just for a variety of ethical reasons with having poor undergrads stand in the sun for 30 minutes and, and uh, the dog standing there bored and not getting anything out of it. Um, we, we chose to walk them, but the, the way we defended that was that they were all walking at the same pace. Right. Well, and I, I would imagine, you know, when we're working, the dogs are moving anyway. Like I don't necessarily care how different my dogs are when they're sitting in the sun versus, uh, right. to each other. I want to know how they are when they're moving. When they're working. So right. That, exactly. <laughs> that to so, me seems great. We just walked them and they were, they were actually spaced out. There'd be a black lab, a yellow lab, a black lab, a yellow lab. <laughs> and every five minutes, another one would leave, finish their 30 minutes and another one would take their Come place in. and start. And so we, we wanted to make sure that it wasn't like we tested all the yellow dogs first and then the black dogs and, you know, control right. all that. Um, so yeah, we, we did get some pushback on that in the, um, in the peer review, but what we said in the end was that they were, they were working minimally. The exercise wasn't really, none of them were really panting. Um, they, I mean, they were a little bit because they're happy to be there, but none of them were excessively panting. So we think that they, the fact that they were working at the same, um, degree, so to speak, the, mm -hmm. the same exertion, probably, you know, if we'd had them actually running or working, then you can't control who runs faster or slower or whatever. Right. But yeah, no, so, that makes perfect sense. So, so the consensus on that is it's still, nobody else has studied that in dogs. Um, there's been some other sort of dermatologic studies on medical, on coat color, but nobody's really studied that. And it's a small number of dogs, you know, 20 dogs total. So certainly it needs to be repeated to, to see if there's any difference. But our consensus was don't, don't worry about don't selectively get light colored dogs because you're worried about heat stroke. You can get, just get the dog that works the best. That's great to hear. Yeah. Cause it's hard enough to find the right working dog anyway. Exactly. Uh, without worrying about color. I do. Uh, I'm a little crazy about coat type right now, but we just had a big tick disease scare with one of my oh, dogs. Yeah. So now I'm, I'm very, uh, nope. I want dogs that are easier to tick check. Um, right, that's, that's a great practical. practical yeah. Thing. But it's not, it's not so much the heat. Um, as as the ticks just um, the practical absolutely yeah so okay aside from it sounds like our risk factors then are you know it's the actual ambient temperature it's the humidity it's what the dog is used to 
I would imagine some amount of the dog's fitness level. Is there anything else that we should be thinking about as we're kind of assessing our dog's risk? So if we look at every, there aren't a lot of studies, but if we look at every study available and at some point we've looked at every study available and especially the, the most, the most telling as far as fitness goes, again, Dr. Mike Davis did a, um, this great study with, with detection dogs where they looked at all sorts of strategies to improve their tolerance to heat. And over several years, they looked at electrolyte solutions and conditioning and all of this, all these, these other things. The only thing that consistently made them more tolerant to, to heat and longer terms of exercise was exercise. So it was conditioning. And so just like human athletes, just like, uh, just, I mean, even though we don't thermoregulate the same, the more, if you want your dog to be able to work for an eight hour day in hundred degree temperatures or whatever temperature is normal for your environment, then you have to be able to train that much. Uh, yeah. You have to right? practice. You, you have to practice. Right. You can't, you can't just, you know, and I briefly, when I was younger and more physically fit, <laughs> more enthusiastic, I delved into the marathon world for a little while mm-hmm. in the adventure, adventure race world. And there was a big thing about don't train 20, six miles would train 12 miles and that didn't make any sense to me if i only train 12 miles what's going to happen when i actually go out and do mentally i'm going to be like why isn't this over you know yeah and and so and i don't i don't really know the science behind training for a marathon but but with dogs we know that if you want your dog to be able to perform at a certain level you have to train at that level and and not not like go out tomorrow and do it uh, but work up to that uh, work up to that level. And yeah, consistently, you know, cooling vests aren't really practical. They're, they can be helpful in some situations. Electrolyte solutions and, and formulations never been shown to be actually advantageous to dogs because dogs don't sweat. So they don't lose electrolytes when they exercise like we do. We're right. just, when, we, when we give them electrolyte solutions, thinking that's helping them tolerate the heat or exercise better, that we're extrapolating that from us. They Their kidneys and their body knows they, you know, if, if the electrolytes say potassium, for example, gets off by a tiny, tiny amount in the blood, the heart stops. So the minute the, or something bad happens, the heart. So the minute, the second the body realizes that, wait a minute, I've got more electrolytes than I needed. And I, you gave them to me, but I didn't need them because I never lost them in the first place. They're just going to be sent out in the urine immediately. Right. And oh, so, God. yeah. Electrolyte solutions, some people really promote that, but there's been multiple studies that show not only when you give a commercial electrolyte solution, they're not, it's the change isn't detectable in the blood or the urine, meaning either there's not really what they say there's in there or the body's just very, very quick at fixing it. Yeah, it might go it up. Out. Right. And the other is that, um, that there's no change in performance. There's no, no yeah. there was a great study that uh, the Penn Vet Working Dog Center, Cindy Otter, did a couple of years ago looking at hydration strategies. And they gave a chicken flavored electrolyte solution to dogs. And those dogs had more body water at the end of the day, meaning that they stayed more hydrated, which is great. We got all yeah. excited about that. But then we figured out, they figured out and shared it with the rest of us that the dogs were drinking it. It wasn't the electrolytes, they were drinking it because it, tasted like chicken tasted 
good. Yeah. Right. So that was they, my first guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. They, they and that's because, because I oh. put Boolean cubes in water sometimes to, to yeah. encourage the dogs to drink. to drink. Exactly. Um, which is something I guess I remember taking in my wilderness first responder course, you know, they were, they really emphasized to us in one of my courses, you know, dehydration and heat stress are not the same thing. You can't <laughs> treat heat stress just by drinking. Right. Um, and I guess how, you know, again, because humans and dogs have pretty big differences, what is the link between dehydration and heat stress in dogs? You know, do they tend to come together? They is there do. anything? Yeah. Uh, they do. I mean, they do as well in humans, but like you said, they're two separate things that you need to, you need to treat separately, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You need to, you need to, I should, should say, address separately. Um, with, with dogs, we know that when they're dehydrated, they're, um, they're not moving to so the blood. The, the heat has to go from the body into the blood to the, we always just say the core, meaning the lungs so they can breathe it out. And, mm-hmm. and the, the ability to dissipate that heat relies a lot on cardiac output. And if they're dehydrated, they don't, they're de, you know, their blood pressure is lower. The cardiac, mm-hmm. cardiac output's lower. They're not able to circulate and pick up that, that heat and get rid of it as easy. Also, uh, the one of the main reasons is that the heat is dissipated. It's picked up by water. Water can hold a certain amount of kilocalories of heat. Okay. So it needs water to pick up that heat and get rid of it in, in evaporation. Right. Uh, okay. Panting, okay. Right. So if they, that's why humidity, if it's really humid, there's got to be that gradient f- for the water to, you know, like a, a high humid area with a lot of heat. It has to have a colder drier place to go. So if it's really humid outside and the humidity and the heat is hotter and wetter than what the dog is putting out, it, it doesn't dissipate as easy. So, yes. yeah. so um, yeah, anyway, it, there is a big tie into that. There's been it, not a lot of studies, but a few older studies that showed that when you dehydrate the dogs, they get hotter quicker and they don't cool down as fast. So, and that's just because of the lower cardiac output and not, not able, their body's not able to pick up that heat and circulate it and get it out through the lungs. Okay. But, yeah, but that makes in, sense. In Go treating ahead. it, um, those, you know, two different things, cooling the body, you can't just, you will cool the body somewhat if they have water, if they drink water, if you give them IV fluids, but you really need physical cooling from water or something from the outside to, to get them cold. Yeah, which I think that brings us to, so Jess and Robin, again, both ask, what about, what are some of those most effective ways to manage our canine's temperature in the field? Right. So let's talk first about normal dogs and your goal, the goal of not letting them get heat stroke is always there. That's a given. But say your your goal is to continue working even in this hot environment. So what we know from just a few studies, and we'd love to be able to repeat this um, in dogs, is that intermittent cooling between bouts of exercise extends their endurance exponentially. Uh, so wow. one study okay. one study showed that if the dogs were cooled down intermittently, so they would run for 15 minutes on a treadmill, and then they'd stop, dogs would either be put into a kennel and allowed to rest for 30 minutes, and at which time their body would normally, their temperature would decrease to baseline, which was under 103. Normally, they'd all get down to normal temperature after 30 minutes, but half of the dogs would be actively cooled. Mm-hmm. And the first phase of that, well, what they found or one study found 
Then they'd go back, the dogs would go back and run for another 15 minutes, and they'd repeat that four times. And what they found is that if the dogs were allowed to passively cool, they got hotter, faster with each, and they got higher temperatures each subsequent bout of exercise. But if they cooled them rapidly with these ice packs and, and cold water, so they'd rapidly cool them to baseline, and once they reached baseline after like five minutes, they'd put them back in the kennel to rest for the remainder of that 30 minutes. Those dogs would run, uh, their temperatures would stay lower for longer in mm -hmm. subsequent bouts of exercise. Well, another study that sort of followed that, they let the dogs run to fatigue, which fatigue just mean, it doesn't mean collapse. What it means is a very specific set of criteria, like slowing down or looking at the handler, asking to be off the, get off the treadmill. You know, um, yeah. They, of course, didn't run them to, to any kind of stress. But but when they would rapidly cool the dogs between bouts of exercise, or if they wore, uh, wore cooling or they had active cooling while they were running, they ran up to 160% longer. So that wow. this time, this time, instead of running them for 15 minutes and stopping them, they let the dogs run to fatigue. And then they just measured when that was. And there was up to 160% longer wow. than when they weren't cooled. So what we know is active cooling while you're in the field. Don't wait till you think your dog's too hot. If you do a de detection problem and your dog comes back to you, cool them down, hose them with water. Like when we're training, we have the little kiddie pools and we have buckets yeah. of ice water that you can sponge over them and stuff. So rapidly cool them when they're immediate, when they immediately get done. And they, that increases their endurance throughout the day, which is inc incredible. It, I mean, it, it happens in human athletes, but we really try to not compare humans to dogs just because we yeah, our cooling mechanisms are so different. different right. Yeah. But so well, that's that, in the field, cool your dog down during, mm -hmm. as he's going along during the day. Yeah, that makes sense. And that actually gels with, it's interesting. So I think when we hear, okay, so you don't want to act, you know, you want your dog to acclimate. So you don't want them to be hanging out in AC all the time. Right. But like, for example, when we work on the wind farms, we drive between wind turbines. So it's like a 20 minute search and then a, you know, five, 10, 20 minute drive, and then another 20 minute search. And we would be blasting the AC kind of in between those. And I would also, um, I would have a cooling vest that I would freeze. So it was like a frozen t-shirt yeah, right, contest right. sort of thing. And then when we'd get to like 2, 2 PM or so, when we were getting out for our last or second to last turbine, that's when I would like break that out and put it on the dog. Maybe not even while they were searching, but just in between each search. So that, um, that's, that's exactly what they used in that first study. They used ice packs. Oh, they used cool. a, a yeah. cooling vest uh, it was just a, a vest that had slots for big icicles. Uh, and, uh -huh. you know, in, from a practical standpoint, if you don't have some sort of really good refrigeration unit, you put it in your car, by the time you get to where you need it, yeah. it's thawed. But if you have some way to keep it cold um, and it, while you're out there, that's exactly what they used. And there was another study with police dogs that they or law enforcement dogs where they ran and did a bite problem, either wearing nothing called them naked or, or they wore mm -hmm. a Kevlar vest or an ice pack. And what they found was it, they didn't, they all got just as hot doing the problem. Um, but mm -hmm. the dogs that were wearing nothing cooled down faster than, than anything else. And they did see a trend. It was only a small number of like five or six dogs. So they mm -hmm. saw a trend with the cooling with the vest as well. But what, in almost every cooling vest study I've seen that that 
included this, the handlers reported that their dogs appeared more comfortable if they used a cooling vest. So interesting. just subjectively, they said, my dog was less restless. He wasn't, you know, splayed out as much, seemed more comfortable. And I've seen that with the cooling mats. One, uh, one study that was done with a very expensive prototype of a cooling mat, the cooling mat didn't really work as well as just putting them in a tub of water. Um, but one reason is they didn't want to sit, they didn't want to lay down. They were just standing on it. They were in a um, crate. So, but, but those cooling mats, if you can get them to lay down on them. Um, yeah, that's a great, a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. And then when we were in, you know, when we were in Guatemala, we didn't have refrigeration at camp, let alone being able to right. <laughs> freezers with us anywhere. So that was, you know, I was hosing barley down with, you know, my camel back and trying to get it in his armpits and his, mm-hmm. his ears and kind of his inguinal area. Um, and then if we came across water that didn't look, you know, totally potentially came in infested or anything really terrifying, right. um, we were letting him go in or encouraging him to go in and, you know, let him lie down and kind of yeah, take a absolutely. dog break as long as we needed. Is there anything else that, you know, we could be carrying with us or thinking about? It really seems like it's kind of, it's kind of water, ice, fans. Yeah. So, um, you know, the traditional wet, we, the traditional way of cooling down, we've always said wet and windy, um, mm-hmm. spray them with fan, uh, spray them with water and then, then put a fan on them. And that was partially because and that, that it is very effective, but partially we were afraid for years and years to use ice water or cold water because the myth was you cause peripheral vasoconstriction. But recent, I mean, actually there was a study in like 19, 1980, that showed that <laughs> ice water was the fastest way to cool, but no, nobody's really, that was, that study was done for the purpose of the space program and buried in a obscure journal that no veterinarian is going to read. So nobody ever knew that was there. And we've been saying for decades, don't use ice water. And it sounded good. I said it, I learned it in school. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea was it supposedly causes peripheral vasoconstriction, which so the blood vessels in the skin close down and they can't, get rid of heat as much. And other people say they'll start shivering. It'll warm them up. It, like, no, it, physics doesn't work that way. You can't put something cold on something hot and warm it up. Just can't. The shivering isn't that much that'll make them warm. But the thing is that dogs after 103 ish degrees Fahrenheit, they don't use radiation, just heat coming off the body as their primary mean, means of cooling. In fact, that's negligent. negligible not negligent negligible (laughs) compared to panting so Uh they weren't using that method anyway so if you cause peripheral vasoconstriction well you're going to just push that hot blood to the core well people say okay well that's bad you don't want the heat going to the heart and the lungs well you got to get it there anyway to get it out of the body right so um we don't really know if it's good bad or otherwise but we we know that it's not harmful another argument against it is I see this on social media a lot. They say, well, you'll put a heat stroke dog, you'll put them in shock if you put them in cold water or use ice water. Well, they're already in shock and <laughs> because they have heat, yeah. stroke, heat stroke. Yeah. And, and one of the main treatments for shock is peripheral vasoconstriction with medicine, vasopressors. So isn't right. that kind of a treatment for it? We don't know if, oh, it, yeah. huh. if it works. <laughs> and we don't know if yeah. it works. I mean, in theory, it's, but you know, my theory is no bit better than their theory. So, um, what we do know, though, uh, Dr. Emily Hall and her colleagues in the UK have been doing some great work on retrospective data of about 800 dogs. Um, and one of the things that they've found is that their 
they're pretty sure that the ice water, cold water thing is a myth. I mean, we kind of knew it, but we didn't have any data. Yeah. And they, of course they're looking back at dogs that have already, the records of dogs that have already heat stroked. You can't do cause and effect um, conclusions based on that. But what they are, the things that they're finding is that dogs that are cool. I mean, you should talk to them, have them on your podcast. Dogs oh, that great. are dogs that are cooled prior to arrival at, the, at veterinary care are far more likely to survive. And we kind of knew that already from other studies, but they mm-hmm. really brought it home. The other studies were like 50 dogs and they did 800 some dogs. Oh my God. And, wow. and so um, they're busting a lot of those myths. Um, another one that they're busting is that once a heat injury, always more at risk for heat injury. We've known that it's not really true, but we keep, yeah. we keep saying it. And they were able to show that uh, pretty, pretty solidly with their data, which is, which is awesome. So the idea yeah, that's is great news. Um, ice water, you're probably not going to have ice water available wherever you are, especially where you work. Um, but yeah. if you have, if you have it, you know, here's the, here's the prime example. You're at some kind of dog event, a training event, a trial, uh, a public event, and somebody has that big cooler full of ice cubes and water bottles. Don't be afraid to use that to, you know, because we say don't use, if that's all you have, use it. Um, yeah. But it doesn't mean don't use anything else and just selectively dunk them in ice. What it means is all of that stuff where we said that's bad, don't be, it's not bad. If that's what you have, use it. Basically use anything that's colder than the dog and, and put on the dog. And running, we believe that running water versus water that's sort of sitting on the dog is probably going to be better based on horses mm-hmm. and, and other things. Because if you ever put water on a dog that's really hot, you know, you hose them down and then you feel that water, it warms up instantly. Yeah. And, and so if you can, it, it get, grabs all the heat it can out of the dog and then it can't really and go anywhere. Goes. Right. So if you can continue to hose them down or like you said, find a stream or find a body of water that's not inherently dangerous to the dog and you, uh, that's, you know, that's uh, what we recommend. So in, in a practical thing, if you're training or I'm sorry, if you're not training, if you're working or training and you're working out of a vehicle or a, a stationary place that's close enough to ice, what we suggest, we get these little tiny, um, these little tiny coolers, like the six pack, you can't see my hands, the six pack yeah. coolers. And it, it, for example, when I worked with the Navy, dogs the special operations dogs in the morning my technician and i would fill those with ice like crushed ice and water and and then a couple sponges in there and we'd put one of those in each truck because if you take that same amount of probably three gallons of water and you dump it over the dog it's just gonna roll over the dog and go to ground but if you take that sponge out and you sponge it over the dog everywhere like you said under the armpits and everything Mm -hmm. then you put that sponge back in the in the cooler and you take out the other sponge and then you repeatedly mm-hmm. do that. You sort of get more bang for your buck, so to speak out of that small amount of water. And then they would come back at noon, usually for, for lunch, take a break in training and we'd swap, we'd refill them. So yeah. one of those, if you, if you do nothing, if you never open it up, one of those coolers would stay really cold for about half a day in the back of a really mm-hmm. hot truck. And then, um, so if you were, if you're somewhere where you are close enough to civilization, which most ha- handlers in the U S are like that, you can go buy a convenience store and get a bag of ice 
and yeah. put, put it in there and do that twice a day. It's a total of about $5. And now you have this really rapid cooling method with you. Yeah. And I would say most of the time we do have access to a freezer, at least like at night, once a day, something like <laughs> right. that, where we should be able to do that, you know, and in Guatemala, luckily, one of the things we saw in Guatemala was our daily highs weren't that high. And we were always in the shade because we're in dense jungle. Oh, right, um, right. Like, I mean, the imagine. daily highs were high, but it wasn't, it was like 85. Um, you know, okay. it, it didn't really get much worse than that. Um, so I would imagine it's really humid. Very humid. Yeah. It was really the humidity that, that was killing the dogs. Um, more than, more than the heat, I suspect, and kind of lack of airflow, lack of wind. Right. Um, Right. And we, we really haven't tackled the humidity thing yet. Not a lot of, um, not a lot of effort has been gone into how to counteract the humidity around dogs where, you know, you can put cooling methods on the dog, um, and that makes his body colder and or cooler and and helps combat the humidity a little bit. But we can make the environment around the dog cooler, but we can't make it less humid. If yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, you can't just like fill them with fill the environment with desiccating beads. Right, um, <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> huh? Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, I've always just yeah kind of had to. We just have you to just deal with it. Canine Conservationists offers several on-demand webinars to help you and your dog go along in your journey as a conservation dog team. Our current on-demand webinars are all roughly one hour long and priced at $25. They include Puppy Scent Work, all about raising and training a conservation puppy, Found It, Alerts and Changes of Behavior, and What You Looking For, Teaching Your Dog a Target Odor. Find these three webinars along with jackets, treat pouches, mugs, bento boxes, and more over at our website, canineconservationists.org slash shop. something I remember learning from your, your really lovely um, webinar on heat stress. And um, basically, so this is kind of circling back to the ice thing. So it seems like the most important thing is to get them actively cooled as soon as possible um, and kind of reduce the amount of time that they're in heat stress as much as possible. And that's kind of where the theory with ice being more helpful than not right. comes from, right? Because it's it's really about getting them as cool as possible, as fast as possible. Right. Um, and, yeah. okay. and people are concerned, um, rightfully so, that, you know, when, when a dog truly does have heat stress or heat stroke, they, um, which I, I should clarify, we're not calling it that anymore um, because those were based, heat stress, heat exhaustion, heat stroke, those were based on body temperature, those descriptions. Mm. So now we're calling a mild, moderate, and severe heat injury, and the severity increases with the more neurologic signs. So the less conscious the dog is or the more uh so that's kind of what we're mild heat injury uh, moderate and then severe the rapid cooling now what we used to think that if you cool them down too fast they would get too cold and based on a couple of retrospective studies from 1996 and 2004 respectively which were very good studies but in small numbers of dogs one of the things that they found in both of those studies that was that dogs that presented to the veterinarian lower than they said hypothermic, which clinically we consider like 98 and below, um, but normal dog temperature, 99 and below. If they presented lower than normal temperature, they were more likely to die. And that was misinterpreted. Now these are retrospective studies, so you can't show a cause and effect relationship. You can only show, show associations, right? So mm-hmm. you, 
we misinterpreted that as a veterinary community as if you let the dog get too cold, that will lead to death. And I've seen it multiple times with uh, canine handlers, you know, they're, they're, or, or owners, their dog has a heat stroke or severe heat injury. They cool it down with really cold water and then the dog dies. And then the veterinary personnel, I just saw this on Facebook yesterday mm. by a veterinarian blaming the handler or the owner for killing the dog. Like, no, the heat stroke killed the dog. Um, yeah. And so one of the things that, so that, that Dr. Hall and her uh, colleagues in UK showed in some of their work was that this is something we, we kind of knew we knew this, but we needed somebody to scientifically study it was, and they, they did a great job was that they're not getting cold. They're, they're not dying because they got too cold after you cooled them. They're too cold because they're dying and they're in shock and, and they can't, they do lose their ability to thermoregulate for several hours to days after they have a severe heat injury. So if you cool them down a lot, really fast, they're going to continue to cool. So you have to stop that cooling when they get to about 104. We used to say 103, now 104, because we know that's a safe temperature for dogs. And then be prepared to warm them back up again. So if you cool them in the field and they get down to 104, by the time you get to the veterinarian 10, 20, 30 minutes away, they're going to be lower than that. And so now it's completely counterintuitive, but you might have cooled them down in the field. Now you have to have the heat on in your car right, to keep them... More. Yeah, because their body is so. I mean, it's in shock. Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, I mean, this. It, I'm so glad you brought up that that paper because that you know, I, as you were explaining it, I totally made the same logical fallacy that these veterinarians were making. But it's almost like we're about to do a snake, a couple snake episodes, and it's almost oh, like great. saying that oh, antivenin is what's causing these dogs to. Yeah, right. It's like well, no, the no. dog got bitten by a snake, and then he had antivenin. Then they got the antivenin, and like he still died. Exactly. Um, exactly. <laughs> like and- the antivenin was not the problem. <laughs> And we see that a lot in retrospective studies of people that aren't, you know, uh, veterinarians. We, we, in school, we don't really get a lot of um, of training on how to interpret studies. Uh, some mm, some places yeah. are better than the others. We get you get that when in your specialty training, but if you're a general practitioner, you don't get that. And and so we do that a lot. We say um, the dogs that got this medicine were more likely to die. Well, no, the dogs that this wasn't a randomly controlled. Right. The dogs know, got that randomly, medicine because they were in trouble. They, because they were the worst dogs. Yeah, they were they were in yeah. the worst shape. And it's what they say that that's that's one of the other brilliant things that Dr. Hall and her colleagues did. And they have a great podcast out there as well. Um Ooh. that people can listen to. I'll have to track that. I'll get back with you afterwards. Yes, please do. <laughs> um, but they, they talk all about their work because I feel kind of silly talking about their work when they should be talking about it. But it's great work and we're all excited about it. So one of the things that they did is they got their data from primary care general practice veterinarians because most dogs go to general practice. They don't go to universities. The sickest dogs go to universities. Right. And the, the sickest dogs whose owners have exponentially more money, meaning that they're less likely to get euthanized for financial reasons, all these uh, selection bias. So they they said, look, we're not, we've got these studies from universities, but they don't represent the, the majority of dogs in the world or in, in the UK that are getting heat stroke because those dogs are going to general practitioners, family practice veterinarians. And their data was different. It was different than what we have from universities. The dogs are presenting hotter than the 106, which was the 
you know, if, if they get to 106, they're more likely to die. They sort of dispelled that because they, the general practitioners are usually right in your neighborhood. You get, you get to them quicker. Right. Um, yeah. And they, um, they have different treatment methods and the people don't necessarily have $10,000 to spend on after treatment. So they have to treat differently. So that very thing what you're saying is, you know, the antivenin dogs that get antivenin and they're not dying from the antivenin and they're dying from the snake bite. Um, right. When it comes to cooling, those dogs that were dying, yes, dogs that were dying are more likely to have a lower average body temperature because they're dying. And that's what happens when, when living things die, they start to not, not post death cooling. We're talking about being in shock and not being able to maintain your body temperature. So they say that rapid cooling or ice water cooling, if they get too cold, you're going to, it's going to cause blood clotting disorders. It's going to cause blood sludging. That's not really a thing, but they, they say it'll cause blood sludging. It'll cause um, DIC or disseminated intervascular coagulation. No, that's that's caused because they got too hot. We know that it's that's yeah. a scientific fact. We know that the platelets and the clotting factors and everything breaks down when the body gets too hot. Um, so we can't blame it on getting too cold. We have to blame it on the heat. Yeah. So, but the cook time, the cook time, as we call yeah. it, you have to decrease the cook time. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So just do everything you can to get them cool. So I've got two questions from patrons and then I think we're just about done unless there's anything we need to come back to and re-clarify. So Jess, this is a little bit of a a longer question and I'm hoping it's going to make sense to you. Um, It's kind of two different questions. So what is the line at which it makes sense to stop and let the dog rest? Um, And she's kind of talking about where is the line between pushing them a little bit to help them acclimate versus pushing them into a danger zone. Um, And then with that, she's kind of wondering, how do you figure out how hot is too hot for a given dog? And I think we've touched on both of these things, but maybe if we can get that, those two things in one soundbite. To to reiterate Mm -hmm. that, it's absolutely up to the individual dog. So you can't go by body temperature. You can't go by ambient temperature. Um, Too hot for the dog is when the dog starts showing those sort of final behavioral aspects, refusing to come back to you at all, not interested in whatever their reward is, um, and uncontrolled panting. That's when you know that too hot, and that's, as you see, that's not based at all on body temperature. It's nice to know what your dog's temperature is because maybe today it's hotter than normal. Like you said, with your dog in the, the amount of time, wow, my dog usually runs pretty cool at 106 and he's 108 today. That's different for my dog and my dog's acting different. I should stop that. And that, so that was one question. What was the other question? Yeah. How do you figure out too hot is too hot for a a given dog? Oh yeah, that's right. Oh, the incremental thing. When, when you're working with your dog, trying to get them to, to improve their acclimation, uh, touching back on that is that, that incremental, let's say today we walk for a mile in, in 90 degree weather and 85% humidity tomorrow we find a time of day that those, those environmental conditions are going to be the same. And we walk a little bit longer, mm-hmm. 25%. We generally say 25% increase whatever it is by that much or by the duration by that much. And, and then you observe your dog if they can handle it, if they can handle it just fine, 
and they didn't appear behaviorally any different than they were before the day before, um, then the next day you can add another increment. Now, if they don't, if they really seem to struggle, they show that uncontrolled panting or um, the refusal to work or avoiding coming back to you or avoiding uh, doing the work, then the next day you do the same thing again. Do you layer in any like higher intensity things as well as you're acclimating or is it all kind of walking? Yeah. So um, I'm just giving walking because that's the very baseline. If you're already starting out with a dog that's super fit, then you wouldn't start with walking, right? Oh, okay. Great. So, yeah. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm just um, saying, like, if you're starting from day one, um, you're gonna you're gonna do that walk. If you already know you can do a walk trot for for an hour or, or whatever, start start at that. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and so there's you can increase the duration at at a, at, at a set intensity. You can increase the intensity at a set duration. Or you can increase um, the temperature. Or you can increase the temperature, yeah, right. Okay. And uh, using the South Park reference from whatever their movie was called, The Longer, Harder, um, uh, we say longer, harder, faster. I love that. And, and so, <laughs> That's the first uh, South Park reference giggle. we've had on this show, I think, which is, which oh, is actually love, kind of surprising. I <laughs> oh, I love South Park. So, uh, yeah. So longer, meaning duration, you go for a longer, um, harder, and meaning you do hills or an increased temperature, you do, you know, you change the terrain or you change the temperature. Um, and then faster, I guess would just be the intensity. It's just a catch word for the intensity. Yeah. And you cha- you only pick one of those things to change a day. And again, like I said, if, if that day your dog appears to have shown more signs of thermal stress, then you keep repeating that. You don't change anything. You keep repeating that until those signs of thermal stress go away. And or or go back to sort of a baseline mm-hmm. thermal stress, and then you go ahead and and you change it. Yeah, I know with with my dog Barley when we were living in El Salvador, the biggest thing I noticed for him, kind of day over day as we were acclimating, because we would kind of go up into the mountains to cool off for a while, and then come back down onto the beach to surf. Um, and then you know we would have backslid a little bit in our acclimation. Would it right. was nighttime panting that was the biggest thing that I noticed for him. Like if he was waking up in the middle of the night and like panting for a while before he could fall back asleep, that was like a big sign for me that he was not not really used to being back down. Um, you know, in the in the that's inferno. A good, yeah, that that's a good reference. I mean, because the the night you know with when it comes to thermal stress. Um, at night, when there's no solar radiation, wherever they are, whatever the temperature outside is, that's what the temperature inside, like a vehicle, is going to be. Yeah. So when we're talking about vehicle, so but we know that as soon as the sun comes out, that that container, or whatever, gets hotter, a lot hotter. So at night, we're taking away any solar radiation, and and if the dog is is panting from that, that just means that the air around them is really hot. Or, or they're not used to it. Yeah, and and that's, there's a lot of discussion about or question at night. If if your dog works in an open environment or an outdoor environment at night, is it better to bring the dog into a nice air conditioned environment to sleep, or is it better to acclimate them by keeping them in ambient air? We know in humans that you know they looked at it in service members and things that if you put them in air conditioning to sleep, they sleep better and they're more refreshed and rested Mm -hmm. and all sorts of other parameters are better the next day. Um, but we don't know that with, with dogs. Um, we, 
we do know that if you keep them in that hot and humid ambient environment, they acclimate faster or they acclimate at all. We do know that when we haven't sorted out yet is, is it better? You know, and dogs don't, they're not like us where they go down for eight hours and they wake back up intermittently nap, but would it be beneficial to provide them with an hour or two of a day of just air conditioned? Yeah. Like good deep sleep. Exactly. And we don't, we don't, we don't know. know that. Okay. That would be great. So though. we do know that like the intermittent cooling during exercise is really beneficial. But yeah, that's yeah key. we don't know necessarily about overnight or on rest days or anything like that. I mean, yeah, yeah. That, that's I'm going to be interested to hear if we ever figure that one out. Um, okay. So now yeah, the last absolutely. one, we've got a couple questions from Megan. Um, so Megan is kind of wondering how long after uh, a heat event, I guess we could say, should we not work? I'm, uh, and is there any follow-up that should be done after kind of a, a heat event? And I'm sure that depends a little bit on the intensity so we can give a, yeah, a scale. That is a, that is a great question though, because we've had one of the myths that we've had for decades is that once a dog has a heat injury, like you're calling it a heat event, which I like because injury sounds like something is permanent or bad or broken. Mm -hmm. And once a dog overheats to any degree, um, we used to say that once that happens to them, something changes in their hypothalamus, changes in their brain, and they're never as tolerant to heat again. They're broken. And the fact is we've never even studied that in dogs. That was, that was in the early forties and fifties. The human medical world thought that because of some cases of humans that, Uh that were heat stroke. Well, then there's uh, some really good studies that showed that that wasn't really the case. Even with humans. If you yeah. fi- even with humans, right. If you find the reason that a dog, like when a dog has a heat event, I love that term, um, look at all the risk factors. Did the temperature outside change? Was the humidity? What changed for the dog? Has the dog been off work for a long time? Was the dog working in a muzzle? You know, as some dogs mm-hmm. have to. Um, was What of all the risk factors find those risk factors and mitigate, you'll be able to identify what changed in the dog because dogs don't just spontaneously heat stroke for no reason. There's a reason that suddenly they did this and fix that. And then once the dog gets over the initial, if the dog has, it was dehydrated. Now they're hydrated. If the dog had muscle damage, which can sometimes occur like rhabdomyolysis, if the dog had kidney compromise or liver, once that's fixed, the dog can go back to work. Mm-hmm. And and then we just say, take it down a notch from where you were before. Um, you know, if you're used to running the dog for a mile or two miles or for a certain amount of time, just take it down a notch, take it easy. And then, okay, the dog handled that fine. A little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Um, and there's, uh, I know the Military Working Dog Center, Dr. Andrea Henderson there, their sports medicine specialist, she's been developing a rehab program for the dogs. Um, but it, it's generally what we described already. You start out slow, you take it down a notch from where they were and incrementally train them back up to where they, where they were mm-hmm. or where you want them. And some dogs might tackle that in two weeks. Some dogs might take six weeks, but once you fix any of the damage that was done from the heat event at all, if any was done, like, like organ problems or even something as simple as dehydration, then you can go back to work. Okay. That's great to hear. Yeah. And I can imagine, uh, this is a little bit different, but, um, 
because it's humans and it's cold, but I got <laughs> frostbite a lot in high school um, because I was a competitive cross-country skier. Um, and you wear right. very tiny spandex suits and you ski very, very hard and you get very, very sweaty. And then if you can't find your coach or your mom fast enough with your parka, you get a little bit of frostbite. <laughs> um and I know the mechanisms are entirely different, but it was like the environment and the sport that I was choosing to continually put myself in was causing the problem as much, if not more so than any like physiological um, components. So yeah, if you're working your dog in 104 degrees in the sun in a muzzle every year, you know, yeah, you might have repeated heat events with your dog. Um, that's not necessarily because the dog is permanently damaged Broken. from the first one it's because you're right if if your dog we always say if your dog is fat and overweight and out of shape and you work and you try to work them at a certain degree or you know certain i don't mean degree uh, i mean level yeah Intensity, and they yeah. and they can't handle it and they have a heat event or heat injury um and you don't fix that they're going to continue to have that and one of the reasons that it was a self um self-fulfilling prophecy when we'd say, Hey, your dog was a heat stroke as a veterinarian. We say your dog was a heat stroke. Um, you shouldn't work him very hard. You have to be really careful in the future. So now they're afraid to work them very hard. Gotcha. Deconditioning the dog. Oh no. <laughs> and, and, um, you know, the, ar the army, for example, when I came in the army said, you can't work the dogs if it's over 95 degrees and, you know, over 90 degrees, you can work them at night or inside, but if it's 95 degrees or over, you can't work them at all. Well, then we went, that was 2000. Then we went to war in the hottest place in the world or one of the mm -hmm. hottest places in the world. And we had selectively deconditioned our dogs not to be able to tolerate anything over 95 degrees. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, and then we we're telling them, Oh, now your dog's a heat stroke. You got to be really careful and you shouldn't work your dog in hot environments anymore because he's more likely to get heat stroke again which means that if he ever does have to work in a hot environment, he's more at risk. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh gosh. Oh, what a mess. <laughs> we, I think we, we need to, if our dog has a heat event, as you, as you call it in the future, we shouldn't, we don't need to fix the dog as much as we need to fix ourselves as being able to recognize. I mean, of course we have to fix, fix the problem that led to the dog being a heat stroke. But going forward, it's our it's our responsibility. I mean, we're the ones that were broken and didn't recognize that the dog could ha couldn't handle it. We have to concentrate on us being able to note whether the dog is handling it well at that very moment. Um, is the dog? How's the dog's panting? Is it different? Like you said, with your dog, is he acting different today than he was yesterday? What has he been used to over the last two weeks of the acclimation period? Um, so. I think after a heat injury, we really need to focus on what, how we're seeing our dog and how we're responding to them. Yeah. Yeah. Because fundamentally, if the dog has gotten to kind of that level where we are needing to go to the vet, we're needing to, you know, we're really seeing the scarier signs. It's because we missed earlier stuff and we pushed, we pushed too and hard. We pushed and we pushed. Yeah. Right. We used to say often the first sign of heat injury is collapse. And that, what, looking back, that's not true. Yeah, we just yeah. missed everything that was oh leading God. up to it. Yeah. I, my dogs have gotten too hot to work before a lot of times, and I've never pushed a dog to collapse. 
Um, right, right, exactly. Wait, but I mean, I think we'd be startled, and you know, and I granted, if a dog works off leash for any reason, like certain search and rescue dogs and things, and they are out of our sight, mm-hmm. we might not, we might not be able to stop them or or rein them in, so to speak. Totally. And when we do know dogs, some dogs with a high toy drive that will just chase a ball until they drop. Yeah. But but meanwhile, in between there, we're there to say. I mean, a lot of dogs are really smart. They'll, they'll, they'll do exactly what we described earlier. They'll try to get out of the work. They'll try to slow down, but some dogs are, little, they're not really. Yeah. And that's kind of what we look for in this line of work. So we're, right, we're selecting for dogs that are more likely to put themselves in danger. Exactly. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. So I think just to kind of reiterate, so we're looking at kind of uncontrolled panting and reluctance to work, maybe shade seeking. Um, I know my dogs, when they start getting hot, will also kind of pause more often because they do search off leash. And if I'm kind of noticing them Mm -hmm. pausing or shade seeking or anything like that, you know, offering them water, spraying them down, if you have the ability to bring ice. um, And then if things get more serious beyond that, doing much more kind of serious active cooling, stopping work. Um, at what point, I guess this is one thing we haven't covered. At what point do you go to the vet? Like at what point is this right. no longer just, okay, we're going to water ice, cool them down and take the rest of the day off. But it's like, no, we, we got to go to the vet. I'd say that if you don't see a complete bounce back, uh, if you cool the dog down and 15 minutes of rest, 20 minutes of rest, the dog looks like he could do it again, that's great. Mm-hmm. If the dog doesn't, if the dog looks smoked, and of course at the end of the day they're going to be tired, but if you cool the dog down and their body temperature is normal, but there's still anything abnormal about the dog, sometimes it's shaking because they get hypoglycemic. Their blood sugars will drop when they have a, when they get uh, too hyperthermic or heat mm-hmm. stroke. Um, sometimes it's just they are, their body temperature is normal and they're standing but they're still not in the game. Like they mm-hmm. really don't want to go back and work. If after you've cooled them down to a baseline under 103 and everything else is normal, there's still anything abnormal about their behavior or they're still reluctant to work or anything. I take them to the vet. And the reason is, um, you know, and it might not be practical if you're in Guatemala or you're, or you're out in the field somewhere, but the reason is that, Dogs can, if they reach that threshold of too hot for their their individual body and they stay too hot for too long, that sets off this cascade of of um, the clotting disorder, of blood clotting disorder. Their clotting factors, their platelets and other factors in their body, in their blood that are responsible for keeping the blood in a balance of not clotting too much, but also not bleeding too much. Those get destroyed and they they get that disseminated intravascular coagulation. And you can't see that from the outside. But what we have happen is the dog has a serious heat event. You cool them down. They bounce back. They seem like they're normal. They're standing, but they're not really completely normal. And then you, we say, go to bed on them. You put them in their kennel. You put them in the crate. You go on to other things. And 10, 12 hours later, you know, you wake up in the morning and the dog is comatose and has bloody diarrhea because that you've reached that threshold where that clotting disorder starts. Gotcha. Yikes. The, there's a simple vet. There's a simple test, blood test that veterinarians can do to to check for that. And um, oh my, electricity's 
<laughs> flickering. We've got a storm coming oh in. Uh, but there's there's a simple test that veterinarians can do for that if they have that test. Emergency veterinarians will always. It's called a PT, a PTT, or a coag test. Okay. And that that if that it's also the same one we use to see if for envenomation in oh. snakes. Snake oh, bite. cool. Um, so, but not all general practitioners have that. Yeah, but an ER should. Um, an ER should. And if you have a good relationship with a human hospital, say you're in some remote area, um, sometimes they'll run dog blood, just depending on what relationship you have. Oh, cool. Um, and what is, and they can run the test. When a dog has already, has gotten to that point, what is prognosis like you know i assume that's so, that's a load and go get to the vet sort of situation yeah and then what in in stu- studies have shown of heat injury of all you know mild moderate and severe that it's about a 50 percent survival rate the thing is that we don't in those studies we don't capture a lot of the dogs that um that come in get checked out and leave because of financial reasons or they look fine or Dogs on the milder spectrum might not go in at all. Dogs on the serious spectrum might die before they get there. So we don't we don't really know. But in general, it's fifty percent. But that's all inclusive, from super serious dogs to not so serious. And most of the dogs that present to a vet to have that data captured are on the ser- really serious side. So the keys to treating heat stroke are, of course, the in the field, cool them down as fast as you can, and then. The, the things that happen to them that break them, <laughs> that they die from, they either die from um, from the clotting disorder, bleeding out into their lungs and their heart, which those clotting factors in the platelets can be replaced with a, treat, uh, with a transfusion of plasma. Mm-hmm. So again, an ER doc, not all general practitioners have that. Um, so that's, if that's what's going to kill them, you replace that, and generally you can, you can head that off. Wow. Um, a lot yeah. of general practitioners don't know that or don't understand the importance of that mm-hmm. um, because they don't have the test to test for it in the first right. place. But if you test that coag test and it's abnormal, those values are elevated, you give them the transfusion of the plasma, the fresh frozen plasma that has platelets and clotting factors, and you stave that off. The other thing is their gut is very sensitive to heat, the lining of their intestines, and those will die and slough off. And that's the bloody diarrhea oh, we see. Okay. So then bacteria that live normally in the gut don't have a barrier to the bloodstream and they can go back into the body Ooh. and cause sepsis. Yeah. So antibiotic treatment. Yeah. And the other is neurologic damage, their oh. brain swells. And there's medicines that we can give to curb brain swelling. Um, Again, that's something that most of the time is at a emergency practitioner. Yeah. Most general practitioners aren't well equipped to treat heat stroke. They really can't do much more than you can. Yeah. Cool them down. They can do IV fluids and antibiotics, but um, but the, and that, that might be a serious problem when you're in a remote area like like you are. Yeah, I mean it's something we take really seriously because we know we might kind of be our dog's best bet. Um, you know, like where we were in Guatemala when we were at Laguna del Tigre, we were. Uh, like a two hour boat ride down, um, wow. down a river and then, you know, two hours in a car. And then you were in the town of, uh, Paten, which had vets, but I don't think they had any ER vets. You know, our, our closest ER Probably vet not. would have been Guatemala city, which like, Maybe we could have gotten on a plane from Paten, but otherwise we were probably 16, 18 hours from Guatemala City. Um. Which there are so many emergencies with dogs that and people that just those are 
you know, it's like deployed situations. You take your chances. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's honor. We were really lucky to, we actually spoke to a vet. I went to a veterinarian in Costa Rica to ask about um, getting IV fluids. And maybe we should have done this anyway, because they're so useful for so many things, but it was for Mm -hmm. um, snakes. And she was like, well, I could just sell you antivenin. Um, so I, I got, I got (laughs) three vials of antivenin to carry with us while we were there. Um, and we have, with some of the federal law enforcement programs we've worked with, we got them to where, you know, I used to deploy with them because I would carry all that stuff. I'd carry blood products and carry that. And then we just, they just got trained and good enough to do it themselves. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, that's the thing with the IV. I was grateful to get the antivenin instead because it's, it can be sub Q and uh, IVs are not something I'm super great at starting in dogs. I've done it like twice in classes. Right. Um, (laughs) And there's, there's actually very few things that IVs, but IV is what's going to save the dog. Right. It's kind of a supportive, um, it's like giving Tylenol. It's a supportive <laughs> it's thing. Like, right, it's not right, nice. Right. You probably want it, but yeah. Right. A lot of cases, the sub-Q fluids or, or something else, or just letting the dog drink water. Yeah. Um, we'll get them hydrated. But yeah, fortunately, there's not a lot of things that IV is the key to to saving them, or at least the things that we encounter in the field. Yeah. I mean, one of the things this is making me think is, so we've got several of the listeners who are commenting are Australian, um, and I'm sure they deal with pretty heinous heat in a lot of places. Um, you know, I'm wondering if it would be worth investing in some sort of electric cooler solar setup for your field vehicles so that you can just always have ice with you when you're way out in the boonies, you know? If you've if you're going to have a field vehicle with you, but you're still really far from the vet, that would be something I would be considering. Right. Yeah, and there are. I mean, it's pretty amazing. There's there's little coolers and things that people can. You see some of these hunters and fishers, mm-hmm. fishermen, women that have the kitchens in their oh, in their <laughs> SUV or whatever. You know, you, there's all these. They're they're accessible to buy basically yeah, and install I have a, uh, so I live in a van and I have solar power for it. And then I have a Dometic cooler, which is, um, it's a company that's mostly, oh, nice. uh, they kind of cater towards like long haul truckers. Um, but they work great right. and oh, it's, yeah. it's probably 20 liters. Um, it doesn't have a freezer, but it is cold. You know, I can get it down right. to, I think like 34 Fahrenheit. So you could, you could keep ice cold for most of the day, maybe. Yeah, even the and second it might not be ice, to. but it's you know, thirty-four degree water would still help quite a bit. I assume. Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, Janice, thank you so much. I learned so much. I had no idea that antibiotics might be needed in the case of um, a significant heat event. As um, now we're 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 sticking with that term. Um, yeah, I have learned so much. Is there anything else that you wanted to make sure you got across or clarify that we um, we need to get to again? I think that the the main thing is that most of us learned a lot of things that are just turning out not to be true. And if you hear information that that seems completely different to what you've learned, just explore it further. Don't have a knee-jerk re- response. You know, on social media, uh, we have a, a sort of like a flyer that, that we sent out several years ago, and it resurfaces every summer. So it's probably 10 years old now. And anyway, it came up again yesterday, and somebody was like, this is wrong. Ah, you know, and, oh, keyboard like, warriors. Uh, and so, right, keyboard warriors. Somebody tagged me to come in and explain what was going on. Um, but what was really cool is a couple of the people that are veterinarians, it's a veterinarian board, a couple of them on there said, I've never even heard that, meaning the old myth. Oh, wow. I've never even heard that ice water was bad. And because they've been out of school for five or six years. And I said, it's working. <laughs> that's you know, incredible. It's, yeah, that's huge. You know, 
five years from now, we won't have to have these webinars, hopefully, because everybody will know, right. you know, it'll be the standard. And um, so, yeah, I think that is, is that there is a lot of information that it, it's just, it's getting outdated now. We have, before we just guessed and we did the best we could. Oh, oh boy. Because yeah. my electricity. <laughs> wrap um, it up. <laughs> and, yeah, wrap, wrap it up. And, um, but we've got evidence now to refute that. So if you do yeah. hear information, I get it all the time. Well, I talk to my vet and my vet says you're wrong. Well, okay. Um, well, your vet hasn't spent a career doing this. heat injury research either. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. um, but, but just be open-minded and understand like, wow, this is different to everything I've ever heard, but I'm going to look into it a little bit more. And, and, th- and then the cool first, then transport. That's the big you know catchphrase that's out there now. Um, get the dog your the life-saving measure in heat injury is cooling rapidly as fast as you can yeah that yeah i think that's a perfect note to end on and um so janice where can people find you online if they're interested in keeping up with you and the veterinary tactical group sure we have a facebook page just veterinary tactical group um, we do have a website that's not very active. I mean, it doesn't change. It's been the same for quite a long time, but that's www.vettechgroup.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we're also on Instagram where we're most active on Instagram. And that's just vet- veterinary tactical group as well. Excellent. Yeah. And y- there's a free um, heat stress webinar that's got some really helpful visuals in it. So I highly recommend we've been using it in our canine conservationists course now, um, as kind of a required learning for all of our, all of our students. I really highly recommend it to everyone. Um, so, and for everyone at home, thanks so much for listening. I hope you learned a lot and you're feeling inspired to get outside and acclimate with you and your dogs. Um, I think this will still be coming out in probably August. So it's going to be very hot, hopefully, um, not hopefully, but for most of our Northern listeners. Um, so get outside, acclimate with your dog, be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and your skill set. You can find the show notes, AI generated transcripts, donate to canine conservationists, all of our merch and our Patreon and course, all at canineconservationists.org. Until next time. Bye.